Good morning, Mission Fellowship family, as well as any visitors that are listening. No matter where you are, as you worship with us, you are welcome, and we're glad you're listening. Before we begin this morning, I wanted to note a couple of housekeeping items for us as a church. Since online communication is so vital during the COVID-19 restrictions, we want to make sure that those of you that are current church members, or prospective church members, or regular attendees, are receiving and able to read the regular emails that are being sent out. If you are in one of those groups and have not been receiving our emails for some reason, please check your junk mail or spam folders. And then, if you still have not received them, please contact us at info at missionsalem.com. That's I-N-F-O at missionsalem.com with your current email information. We will try and correct whatever is hindering you from receiving those. If you are new and would like to sign up for contact, please fill out the contact form on the main page of our website at www.missionsalem.com. Please regularly check your email for communication as it's one of the primary ways we are communicating with the body during this season of COVID-19 restrictions. I would also encourage you to check out our blog at missionsalem.com blog for some material that you can use for meditation and devotion. Secondly, I want to simply acknowledge that this season is very, very difficult. Much of the attention has been given to physical health, as it should, but I'm finding as I talk with people that it's also taking a large toll on our mental, emotional, relational, and spiritual health as well. It's very natural to feel isolated, forgotten, and alone during this time. If that's you and you haven't received a call from any of our deacons, group leaders, or elders, would you please reach out to one of us? You can reach me at hans at missionsalem.com, and I would love to connect with you and talk with you. Dear brother or sister, please know this morning that you are not alone, you are not forgotten, and wherever you are, you are loved, and we are thankful for you. As we begin our teaching, we will first have a reading from Isaiah 66, verses 15 through 24, read to us by John Schrock, and then we'll read through Romans 12, 1 through 9 read to us by Keegan McMurray. Then one of our elders, Ryan Johnson, will lead us in a pastoral prayer. May the church have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us through God's word this morning. A reading from Isaiah, chapter 66, verses 15 through 24. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow declares the Lord. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tabal, and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord, on horses and chariots and wagons, and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them to be priests and Levites, says the Lord, as the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord, and they will go out and they will look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me, 
the worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This is a word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. You are near to us. In our suffering, you are near. In our joy, you are near. In our loneliness, you are near. When the usual rhythms of our lives are upset, you are near. When we are afraid or anxious, you are near. And so forgive us for letting anything get in the way of our delight in your presence. In our flesh, we have formed habits that do not honor you. We have developed a taste for this world addictions of all varieties, a need for control. We have measured our value by worldly standards rather than yours. We have placed our treasure in the earthly kingdom rather than the heavenly kingdom. Today, make our resistance to you crystal clear to us so we can rip it out by the roots. Today, make your gospel crystal clear to us that when we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to form new habits of righteousness and to develop a sensitivity to and taste for your presence. Father, we pray for an end to the current health pandemic in this world. We ask for lives to be prolonged, for healing, and for relief from the psychological oppression in the air. We look forward to the day that local churches can gather praise you together, and disciple each other. These are the things you set in motion in Christ with his birth, life, death, and resurrection. At the same time, Lord, we set our eyes on our ultimate hope, the completion of the work you started, that day when you put an end to sickness, death, and all depravity. Strengthen us in the knowledge that neither this storm nor the next will be able to separate us from your love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As you are steadfast in your love and your faithfulness, help us to do the same. Our lives are full of opportunities to imitate you in this. Give us great patience. We desire to be disciples, and so we set out on the path of service. Every day we fill ourselves with your teaching, so we are ready to build each other up in you and to exhort one another to not be hardened by sin but instead put our confidence in Christ so we can one day enter his rest. We need your endurance. Help us to see your patience with us so we can share the same with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning again, brothers and sisters. I pray that grace is multiplied to each of you as you have found time to devote to the study of God's word and worship of his name. Have you ever had a situation in which you were focused on one thing in the moment to such an extent that you were completely blindsided by something else. 
Maybe you were cooking dinner and were so focused on one dish that another started burning. Maybe you've been in a car accident where you were looking at one car so purposefully that you didn't see the other car coming from a different direction. When I played basketball, I learned very quickly that I had to keep my peripheral vision open to see screens that were set for the person I was guarding so that I didn't slam into them because I was too focused on the ball. During this time of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think that many of us have a valid concern that we are focusing so heavily on physical health, which is extremely important and should continue to be focused upon, but that we're focusing so heavily that we're going to be surprised by other things. Surprised by the effects of the economics and the effects on mental health and the effects on our social norms. And these things could be devastating in other ways that are currently unknown to us and will only be revealed as time goes on. Perhaps even we're so focused on the topic of sickness and death that we're largely forgetting to ask the question of what happens after death. As I read the news and comments on the internet, it seems to me that there are a couple of foregone conclusions that are sitting underneath much of what the world is thinking. First, there seems to be an underlying assumption that humanity can manipulate or control the fact that all of us have to face death at some point. And secondly, missing from much of the public discussion is what happens after death. 100% of humanity, not just those ravaged by COVID-19, will face death at some point. And yet, very little discussion in the major media or public forum is about what happens after death. As of the recording of this teaching, at a bare minimum, 242,296 souls have entered into eternity due to coronavirus. 65,724 of those souls resided in the United States. Estimates are that upwards of 100,000 American souls will depart this earth due to this pandemic by August. From a humanistic, atheistic perspective, it makes sense that many would think that death is the end. But how do we, as believers in Christ, process this information? As I said before, it is right that we spend time thinking of the physical and the logistical. But could it be that we are paying so much attention to the physical that we are neglecting the spiritual? And if we, the believers, are doing so, what does that mean for the society we are sent to as ambassadors of heaven? Are we focusing so much on coronavirus and surviving it that we have neglected our own spiritual souls? As we look to our text for this morning, we will be reminded that this was definitely not the worldview that Christ held, this humanistic, atheistic perspective. That goes without saying, but the topic of a soul's eternal state was one of the things Jesus talked about the most. In fact, I'm quickly reminded of his words from Luke 12, verses 4 through 5, where he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What we'll find today is that Christ viewed discipleship following Christ in the weightiest of terms because he viewed it as a matter of eternal life or death. So that's our title for today's teaching if you're taking down notes. Discipleship in Christ is a matter of eternal life or death. Discipleship in Christ is a matter of eternal life or death. Remember that we are in the section in which Christ is teaching the disciples about what it is to be a disciple. As he said from Mark 8, to be a disciple, what it is for a disciple to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Christ. And it seems to many commentators that Mark is placing this section we're about to read within the context of the earlier debate that we looked at last week, in which the disciples were fighting over who would be first in the kingdom of God. And he does so, so that he can discuss the topic of discipleship. And so Jesus teaches them how important it is to be a disciple and to stay away from sin so that they can enter the kingdom of God, a synonym for eternal life. So while it seems randomly compiled and made up of a number of possibly unrelated sayings of Jesus, and it could be, Mark compiled them in this place for a purpose. I believe that purpose is to communicate to us the weightiness of sin and its destructive force on being a disciple of Jesus. 
This is weighty because being a disciple of Jesus is the only way to attain eternal life. So let's read our section from today from Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In our text today, Jesus will spell out three specific points. The seriousness of our responsibility for one another, the seriousness of sin in one's own life, and the seriousness of our communal discipleship. Let's first look at the first point. You can write it down if you're taking notes. The seriousness of our responsibility for one another. The seriousness of our responsibility for one another. Directly preceding this section, the disciples are arguing over who is going to be more powerful, greater in the kingdom. And as we saw last week, Jesus quickly shut that down and taught the disciples that his kingdom was different. It is the servants that are great in his kingdom. And in so doing, Jesus was shifting the focus from selfishness to selflessness. It doesn't matter how many times we hear this. We need to hear it again and again. It's not about me. Our brains, our bodies, and desires constantly center themselves on feeding the self, making sure I am taken care of and my needs are met. But Christ says over and over again that his kingdom is made up of those that lay down their lives for one another. There is no one person abusing or oppressing anyone else in the true kingdom of God's true disciples. How we treat each other and help each other as disciples matters on an eternal level. And that's the journey that we're all on and striving on, striving for together. Now you might be saying, Hans, why are you talking about disciples? He's talking about little ones here. Well, in our text in verse 42, we have one that is often confused based off of that phrase, little ones. In the Greek, this is the word mikron, which is rendered little ones. But here it is speaking not of children, but of the disciples themselves. We know this from two additional pieces of information. First, it comes as a contrast to verse 41, where Jesus was talking specifically about disciples. Second, a very similar term and sentence structure is used in Matthew. In Matthew 10, 42, Matthew combines the two statements here and gives us better understanding of the term when he quotes Jesus. Jesus says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus is trying to get across the weightiness of disciples looking out for one another and making sure we are not harming one another, pushing each other towards sin. And this makes sense in the context of the earlier argument. A true church made up of true disciples will have men and women looking out for one another's eternal state. Now this is an important subject right now because some people are debating what the church will look like after COVID-19. You see this online, but I also hear this in discussions with other pastors around town. Phrases like the need to adapt or using new methods or the method doesn't change the message are being thrown around a ton. And it's honestly making me very nervous for those leaders and for the church. It's indeed true that methodology in a church is often a secondary issue. But right now, what many are debating is not just methodology of the church, but the innate makeup of what defines a church. This has been a decade or so in the making, but the debate is around whether putting out media online to be an online church so that people can passively consume and gather in virtual communities online is the same as doing so in person. 
Now, with all due respect, I'm going to shout from the rooftops, no, it is not. The church is, at its core, God's people gathering in local assemblies to reflect the truth that we are spiritually gathered together as one assembly in heaven. The word church in the Greek, ecclesia or ecclesia, means assembly. It comes from the idea of the assembly of the Israelites. And why this matters in the context of our text today is that if we slowly but surely give into this false idea that the church is an organization that puts out information to be consumed by passive individuals, and that any social interaction is just an unnecessary extra, then we will lose the truth that we are responsible for one another. And Jesus takes this so seriously. What Jesus is basically saying in our text is, in contrast to loving a disciple by giving them a cup of water, if you instead cause a disciple of mine to sin, it will be better for you to have a millstone placed around your neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea to drown. Now, Jesus is not mixing words here. The Jews were deathly afraid of deep water and drowning. And you can see this in the reaction of the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee during storms. It was, in their minds, one of the worst ways to die. But secondly, a millstone was heavy enough that it was used to grind grain. They would be roughly conical or cylindrical and would roll over the top of a base stone and crush the grain in between. Most millstones were heavy enough that they needed to be rolled with the power of a donkey or a mule or a beast of burden. And to say that this would be thrown around someone's neck was to say you would most likely be crushed and you definitely would not be able to figure out a way out of drowning if thrown into the sea. It meant ultimate judgment, destruction, and death. And Jesus' point lands heavy in our minds as we listen to this gospel. To incite one another to envy, as the disciples were doing in their earlier argument about who was going to be greater in the kingdom, was literally to play with destruction. To cause one another to sin leads to destruction and is the opposite of what a disciple does. Most churches in most parts of the world are right now having to figure out stopgap measures to have some semblance of fellowship. And we're lucky to have technology on our side in the Western world. But dear brothers and sisters, this is not the end goal of the church. As we studied in depth a few years ago through Ephesians, the local church is the environment in which we each individually practice the one another's that are given throughout the teachings of Christ and the New Testament letters. The church is where our orthodox theology plays out in orthodox practice of caring for one another. It is where we collectively reflect the new humanity that the death, resurrection, enthronement, and pouring out of the Holy Spirit of Christ has created in the earthly realm. Putting out more and more online content is nowhere near a replacement for that truth. It is merely a way to buy time until we do indeed gather together again. And it is in that gathering that we are reminded that we are one another's. And dear church, we will gather again. We are responsible to and for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I know it is hard to see that right now as we've been isolated from one another for so long, but this isolation and these restrictions do not change the innate DNA and makeup of what it is to be the local church. The local church cares for one another in practical gathering together of one another and in serving each other. And this is what Paul was telling the church repeatedly in his letters. From our second reading today, he says this from Romans 12, 4 through 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The NIV puts this uh, saying in a different way. It says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. From 1 Corinthians 12.27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. We are accountable for and to one another. True disciples know this, and it is a mark that they are walking in obedience to Christ. 
False disciples think only of themselves and have no concern for how their actions negatively affect those with whom they fellowship. Listen to these themes underneath Paul's words as he writes to the pastor Titus in Titus 3. Why don't you turn there with me? Titus 3. In Titus 3, verses 3 through 10, he says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Paul was so serious about discipleship and the mold of Christ that he coached Titus to recognize that how disciples treat one another is the basis of the truth of their claim to follow Christ. True disciples will bear responsibility for their own walk and take on a burden for one another's walk. Listen to Paul's words to the church in Galatia, in Galatia 6, 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so in this first small verse in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is detailing the seriousness of our responsibility for one another as disciples. But just as Paul noted in that passage from Galatians, we each need to bear our own responsibility as well. And this is Jesus' second main point, the majority of his statement in our text today. Here, as the second point in our teaching today, Jesus details the seriousness of sin in one's own life. And you can write this down as the second point of our teaching today. The seriousness of sin in one's own life. Let's read from Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48 again. Mark 9, verses 43 through 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, and it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Similarly to the watery grave of verse 42, Jesus pictures the weight of messing around with sin in our own life quite grotesquely. To get his point across, Jesus is using a bit of what is called hyperbole or exaggeration. Just as it would have basically been impossible to put a millstone around someone's neck in in reality, Jesus was not really advising that people maim themselves. In fact, according to Jewish law, this was against God's will. So this is where it is extremely important to understand literary type and usage, rather than taking the Bible literally. But then, just as the sea is a very real destination in verse 42, we must recognize that the hyperbole Jesus is using does not detract from the very real destination of what is translated into English as the place known as hell. 
The Greek word behind hell is yaena, or what you may have heard before as Gehenna. It literally means the Valley of Hinnom and refers to a valley in Jerusalem that was outside the city walls and was known for two main reasons biblically. First, it was known to be the place in which child sacrifice was committed to pagan gods during the time that Israel had largely turned their back on Yahweh. In Jeremiah 7.31, God tells Jeremiah that they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Now, because of this disgusting activity, it was nicknamed the Valley of Slaughter. After King Josiah ended this human sacrifice, it became a place in which the trash and sewage of the city was dumped and lit on fire. Because trash kept being dumped, the fire never went out and constantly consumed whatever was placed in it. And because it was a place of human waste, the worm or the maggots were constantly devouring what was placed there. The fire and worm were never quenched. And most importantly, they sat outside the city gates. Now notice that Jesus uses this idiom from our first reading from Isaiah 66, specifically a section detailing the final judgment of God and the outcome to eternal life or eternal destruction. The Bible is clear that we will end up in one of two destinations. The prophet Daniel put it succinctly when he wrote in Daniel 12 too, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The prophet Isaiah pictures a new heaven and a new earth in which Christ dwells and eternal life is given to his people. Or the other possibility to those outside the kingdom, the new Jerusalem, are those who exist in the place of eternal destruction. Let's read from Isaiah 66. 22 through 24. It says in Isaiah 66, 22 through 24, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Paul speaks of this same hell in his second letter to the Thessalonians. Why don't you turn there with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it says this, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. This same picture is seen at the end of Revelation. Let me read to you from Revelation 22, 14 through 15. Revelation 22, 14 through 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The Bible is clear, dear brothers and sisters. There is no mistake that hell is real. The Bible clearly states that there is an abode of God in which he dwells, and there is a place of destruction created for the angels who rebelled against him, but also reserved for any who desire to exercise their free will to turn their back on their creator and choose separation from him and his people. Now, I recognize that this is not a popular thing to say, but the Bible tells us that while our bodies die, our souls are eternal and are meant for something after death. 
Death proves to us that we are no longer connected to the source of eternal life, the first, the last, the ancient of days. And because of our innate sin, our desire to be selfish and to rebel against the loving authority of God, all of us are therefore destined to the first death where our earthly bodies will die. But the Bible also is clear to state that there will come a day when God, our creator, will also be our judge and will resurrect our bodies so that all mankind might be judged for all that we have done while alive. And the truth is that each of us will be found wanting innately within ourselves. There is no way that we can be found worthy of overcoming our sin in our own body by our own good works. This is why the Father sent his Son, Jesus, to humanity. Jesus ministered and taught, showing mankind that death, sickness, and oppression under the enemy of God is not the desire of God. God's desire is restoration, justice, righteousness, love, and eternal life. And to secure that restoration and that reconciliation for us, Jesus went to the cross to become the sacrifice that pays the price for your sin and mine. He became the offering for our transgressions. He became the sacrifice that paid for our breaking of the covenant relationship that God had with humanity. And after Jesus paid that price, he conquered sin and death to the point that he rose again, proving that resurrection would occur and that those who accept his death in place of their own and then walk in discipleship with him can also attain that same resurrection to eternal life. Through this justifying work, Jesus has rescued us from the valley of Hinnom eternally, the place of being cast outside the kingdom of God so that we might be brought within the city walls through the gate of Jesus' own blood and sacrificial work to live with Christ and his people forever. Now notice the wording back in Mark 9. Notice that it is not so much the torment of fire or destruction that Jesus is focusing on. It's whether or not you enter into life enter into the kingdom, or are kept out. This is yet another place where many commentators point to the insider and outsider language of Mark. Take, for example, verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, outside the city gates. If we desire to be part of the kingdom of God, one among the assembly of the saints, we must recognize that we cannot play around with sin at all. It's a matter of eternal life or death. And again, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's not saying to actually cut off a body part, but he is saying that we need to take sin seriously so that anything that hinders us from walking in the kingdom of God in obedience to Christ is instantly done away with. Let me give you some contemporary examples. If your social media account causes you to sin, it's time to close it down. Better for you to be unknown and out of the loop than to be enticed to envy, jealousy, lust, and covetousness to be drawn into hell. Better for you to be away from Facebook than to be drawn into arguments that ruin the reflection of Jesus Christ. There's another one. If your close relationships cause you to sin, then it's time to either figure out boundaries or end the relationship. Better for that person to be offended than for you to get drawn into sin and ultimately fall into hell. Here's the third one. If your habits or hobbies or financial spending seem to entice you to a place where you are not glorifying God, perhaps it would be better to suffer the embarrassment of asking for accountability and confessing to the brethren than to fall into destruction and eternal hell. Dear brothers and sisters, as enticing as anything might be in the moment, nothing is worth falling away from Christ and fooling yourself into thinking you are avoiding hell. Jesus wants us to see that messing around with sin is a matter of eternal life or death. It is as serious as you can get. Dear brothers or sisters, This season in which we are being presented daily with the idea of death should cause us to be doubly wise and attentive. If there is sin in your life, now is the time to bring it into the light and destroy it. Better for that sin to be destroyed and a portion of what you deem valuable to be taken away 
than for you to lose the eternal life purchased for you by the blood of Christ. True disciples don't wait for someone else to point out sin in our lives. We are those who seek it out in our own lives and present it for destruction at the feet of Christ. Jesus takes sin in one another's lives and sin in our own lives very seriously, and so should we. To do this well, Jesus again finishes by pointing out that we need one another. In the last two verses, he covers what we are calling today in our third point, the seriousness of our communal discipleship. The seriousness of our communal discipleship. Jesus circles around in these last two verses and again discusses our interaction as disciples, as he did in verses 41 and 42. But these sayings are a bit confusing. And so there is much debate about what Jesus actually meant. The most evident possibility, it seems to me, is that Jesus is intentionally using the combined metaphor of fire and salt here to describe sacrificial offerings, and thus they are a picture of trials and sacrifice in the life of a disciple. Now, I get this from two main places. First, both of these images immediately call to mind the sacrificial offerings of the Old Testament. Listen to Leviticus 2.13. It says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Second, even in Jesus' day, salt did not and could not lose its saltiness. Salt in Israel was often gathered from the shores of the Dead Sea, and anything that looked like salt but did not have the flavor of salt was some other form of minerals, but it was not salt. In other words, it can look like it, but it doesn't have the core definition of what makes up salt. Similarly, many might claim to be disciples of Jesus, but if their lives show a characteristic without peace among their brethren, they are probably false disciples. In saying this, Jesus is putting an exclamation point on the earlier argument of who is the greatest. In essence, he's saying you need to kill the sin of pride in your own life and don't cause one another to sin in helping them exercise their pride. And above all, be at peace in your fellowship. Let your lives and relationships be a sacrifice to Christ. Discipleship to Jesus is a total claim on a person's life, especially in our relationships. So take sin in your life and in one another's life and our overall communal discipleship seriously. True disciples, Jesus is saying, are those who present their lives as living sacrifices, often to bring true peace in the midst of the body of Christ. And notice again how Paul connects these same ideas in our earlier reading of Romans 12 as he details the marks of a true disciple. Let me read to you from Romans 12, 1 through 9. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And you can continue on there and read on your own the rest of Romans 12 and the marks of a true Christian. And today, as we find ourselves lulled into self-concern by our surroundings and our isolation, I want to call all of us to respond seriously to the weighty warning and call of Christ. Just because we are isolated and homebound does not mean that these pieces of discipleship take a back seat. My prayer for you and for our church body is that we would lift our eyes to Christ, from whom our help comes, and we would take seriously the creedal confession, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. 
there will be a resurrection to eternal life or eternal destruction. This is sure. And we need to remind ourselves and those around us of this truth. And so today, as you reflect on this sermon in order to apply it, as you reflect on Jesus's words that bring to mind a focus on the eternal state, I want to ask us four questions. First, are you personally taking sin seriously in your own life? Take a moment to ask the Lord to reveal to you by his Holy Spirit what unconfessed sin exists in your life that needs to be given up to him. What things are you toying with that you know are not of Christ, but you have not yet cast aside? If you're listening today and you've never confessed your sin to Christ and accepted his death in your place, that is the first place to start today. Right where you are at, cry out to God in confession and ask for his forgiveness of your sin. He will be faithful to cleanse you of your sin and justify you before God the Father by his work on the cross. Secondly, I want to ask you if you are taking sin in your brother or sister's life seriously. Have you created friendships in which there is mutual accountability, where you are vulnerable with your struggles and sins, calling one another to repentance, honest with what you need help in? If not, don't let the isolation of COVID-19 stop you. Reach out to those within your community group or discipleship group. This is part of why small groups are so integral to our walk as believers. If you're not currently in a group and would like to be, go ahead and contact me at hans at missionsalem.com and I'd love to connect you with a group to help you walk in that mutual accountability. Are there any conversations you need to have this week with your brothers or sisters? Third, I want to ask you if you are serious about bringing peace into the midst of the body. Is there anyone right now with whom you are not at peace? Is it someone in your own household? Is it another brother or sister in the body? What part do you need to play to restore peace in that relationship? Perhaps the enemy is working on you in the midst of this isolation to increase your sense of loneliness. Maybe you are feeling unloved or disconnected because others have not lived up to your expectations of how they would reach out to you during this time. I want to encourage you to put that feeling to death and to instead let it motivate you to reach out to others to check in on them. Fourth, and lastly, are you asking the question of those around you, your family, friends, neighbors, what they think happens after death? And are they prepared for that eventuality? The current climate is ready-made for deep discussions about eternity. If the topic of COVID-19 comes up, which it does all the time now, it's a great idea to be able to empathize that death is indeed scary. But then ask the question of if they have thought about their eternal state. You don't have to say anything. You simply have to ask the question. And then if the Spirit opens the door, that is a great time to tell them the good news of Christ and his work that brings resurrection and eternal life. Christ took the topic of discipleship so seriously that he declared it to be a matter of eternal life or death. Is that how you and I take our walk as disciples of Christ? If not, today is the day to repent and seek after him with the weightiness with which he has pursued you. Dear church, I know that this is a tough topic for sure. Anytime we talk about sin and hell, it's a tough topic, but it's one that we need to hear because it is true that it is the most serious of topics. Let me finish this morning with this statement from Paul's letter to the Romans. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Mission Fellowship, let's be a church that kills sin in our own life, that assists one another in killing sin in each other's life, and takes seriously 
our faith and fellowship together. May the Lord deeply bless you as you meditate on these things and take them to Christ. Lord Jesus, we declare your righteousness in this world, in our own lives. Your wisdom is profound and your power is vast. You can move mountains. You can shake the earth. You can speak to the sun. You alone can stretch to the heavens and tread on the waves of the sea. You perform miracles that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Lord, we recognize our world is not the same as it once was. Some of us have fear for the future. Some feel depressed by the changes. And some of us feel a burning anger at the rules and regulations we're having to follow. Lord, please forgive us for not trusting in you completely. We realize we cannot control this situation in our world. May we be stretched to rely on you more right now. Help us to see the sin clearly in our own lives and to admit our faults to you. Help us to have humble hearts and ask for forgiveness. And let this time in our world of lockdown be a time of healing for our souls. May we also shoulder our brothers' and sisters' burdens. Please help us to be drawn into relationship with one another. May we learn to how to encourage and lift up and not pull each other down. Lord, we ask that you would shine your light through us. As we go to work, go for walks, go to the grocery store, and even school our children. Help us to realize we have a bigger mission than all those things. We need to share share the love of Jesus with the world. Our actions are a reflection of you. Help us to reflect you well, even in the privacy of our own homes. Jesus, we submit to you right now, and we humbly ask you for help and guidance. Thank you for your faithfulness in hard times. We ask these things in your awesome and powerful name. Amen.